It should be a crime how much time I spend working on a 30-second introduction. But nonetheless, here we are. For those interested in my creative process, I'll give you a little sneak peek. One, wake up at 5 a.m. before the kids. Two, 10 cups of coffee. Three, dry mouth. Four, work to alleviate dry mouth using biotin. A dry mouth moisturizing mouthwash. A dry mouth moisturizing mouthwash. A dry mouth moisturizing mouthwash. Four, 60 takes working to get why is it doing that? Working to get the introduction just right. It always ends up being just wrong. Anyways, there it is. Free advice for those out there looking for some creative juices to get their podcast flowing. It is a bright cold day in January and the clocks are striking 13. My guest today is Mr. Jonathan Kay. Jonathan is a Canadian journalist. He was editor-in-chief of The Walrus from 2014 through 2017 and is presently a senior editor of Quillette, an online magazine focused on long-form analysis and cultural commentary. John currently hosts Quillette's podcast and previously co-hosted a podcast with Dr. Deborah So called Wrong Speak. John was the Commons page editor, columnist, and blogger for the Toronto-based Canadian daily newspaper National Post and he continues to contribute to the newspaper on a freelance basis. John is also a book author and editor, a public speaker, and regular contributor to Commentary and the New York Post. Clutch's definitely worth checking out. For my boys Dwayne G. and Emilcar P., both Don Lemon disciples, it might take some getting used to, but I know you're open to new ideas. Political and Vox reported that Quillette has been associated with quote, the intellectual dark web, which Political described as a loose cadre of academics, journalists, and tech entrepreneurs who view themselves as standing up to the knee-jerk, left-leaning politics of academia and the media. Editors note, the intellectual dark web has evolved since that quote. And some of the dark web fellows, in my opinion, have really gotten a big head. So I think that word or expression needs to be revised. Anyways, if you haven't heard or checked out Quillette's work, I highly recommend it. In this episode, Jonathan and I discuss his career in media over the last 20 years and how he has watched the landscape shift over time. We talk about the evolution or devolution of political correctness, the blurred lines between media and advocacy, the concept of ideological enforcers, and Jonathan's notion of how we are crowdsourcing. Mm, crowdsourcing. Fuck. Crowdsourcing censorship. And now, without further ado, I bring to you Mr. Jonathan Kay. Jonathan Kay, welcome to Confronting the Madness. It's been a few months that I've wanted to have you on and glad you were able to join today. Hey, thanks for having me on. You did a TEDx a few years back 
And I wanted to get your take on where you think we're going in, in the world of social media. But before we do that, just want to take a step back and ask you why you got into journalism in the first place. You did a, a degree in engineering, a master's degree in engineering. A law degree from Yale. Uh, obviously, you have some bloodlines in the media business, but talk a little bit about, about your journey into journalism, what it was like when you started, and how it's evolved or devolved. Yeah, I mean, the fact that I've bounced around different careers, I think just <laughs> goes to show how little thought I put into my career, um, <laughs> which, which is I'm a product of my time. Like when uh, this is going back to the 90s, this was still a time when if... Uh, if you did did well in school, reasonably well, um, you could kind of just sort of like, if you're a privileged person like me, you, were, you could just sort of drift through your 20s and eventually find a good job. This is completely different from the way, um, like I, I see the way my teenage kids think about the way they go to school. <laughs> they put a lot of thought into it because they realize mm -hmm. that if they make the wrong choice, they could end up, um, you know, in a... In, not having any job skills. It's a much more high-risk game for, for kids today. Colleges are much more competitive. So I, I could afford to be lazy, and I went into engineering because my father was an engineer. Uh, I tell people I probably gave less thought to my McGill engineering application than to, like, what kind of car I wanted to drive or, uh, you know, what kind yeah. of beer I was... Like, I was a typical teenager. Uh, but I had good marks, and I kind of stumbled into engineering. I got, got a scholarship, and... Uh, but I graduated and I love the math and I love the physics, but I didn't especially uh, have any particular skill in working in an engineering capacity, like real hands-on engineering work. I mm -hmm. wasn't very good at it, didn't really like it. Uh, so I said, well, you know, what, what's a way I could, uh, <laughs> you know, stick around in the academy doing like theoretical stuff, but in a way that vaguely promised I'd be making money at the end of it. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I took the LSAT. And uh, which is like a test just tailor made for my kind of brain. It's, you know, logic, mm -hmm. logic puzzles and, um, you know, identifying the flaws and logical reasoning, like all the all the garbage we do on Twitter, except uh, you get to fill out little ovals with a HB pencil. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I aced that thing and uh, I ended up going to an Ivy League law school. But then three years later or yeah, three years later, <laughs> I was like, well, what do I do now? I graduated. So I became a tax lawyer for a couple of years. I didn't especially like that. And for reasons that I hope progressives will appreciate, my, my job as a tax lawyer was to make rich people even richer. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I guess morally, I had no problem with that, but it was boring. Um, I became an expert on the sections of the Internal Revenue Code and, and the, promulga and the uh, what was the expression? Oh, and, and, the, and the regulations promulgated thereunder. Uh, <laughs> But like those particular sections that helped massive international conglomerates shift money around international jurisdictions. Like that's that's mm -hmm. what I was at a boutique tax firm and that's what we did. Um, so I saw the inside of that and I met lots of billionaires and, you know, and they regarded me as the hired help. Right. Like if you're mm -hmm. if you're a billionaire doing a transaction, the, the lawyers in the room are just it's like the plumbers or the electricians or not that there's anything wrong with plumbers or electricians but, no no um the, the idea that if you know you're a park avenue tax lawyer that it's like a high status job it's it's absolutely not in that milieu mm -hmm. i right. tell people in, in new york there's there's people paid according to their decisions like hedge fund managers and there's mm -hmm. people paid by the hour and if you're a lawyer you're paid by the hour 
And right. um, so, so in that environment, um, the money was good, but it wasn't, I didn't find it intellectually stimulating and I, I didn't feel any sense of purpose really. So I'd always want, I I'd always loved writing and the advice to the extent anyone wants to take my professional advice, which they absolutely should not. Uh, I say the, the thing you're destined to do in life is the thing that you do for free. So if, mm. if, if you won the lottery and you had millions of dollars, what is the way, how, how would you spend your time? Uh, for a lot of people that mean, you know, they become a cook or um, they, you know, they'd organize events for their friends. Uh, in my case, it's writing. If, if, if you gave me lottery winnings, uh, and just said, do what you want with your spare time. I mean, look, I do other things. I spend time with my friends and family, and I uh, play disc golf and go to the gym. But I, I probably just spend most of the day writing and reading and podcasting, um, <laughs> living, mm-hmm. living the dream. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and so, yeah, that that ended up being where I where I drifted. And even as as, as when I was a tax lawyer, like my evenings and weekends, I was writing. I was submitting mm-hmm. articles to. And then Conrad Black um, started up what turned out to be, I guess, the last new broadsheet newspaper in Canada in mm-hmm. 1998. Um, and those were the days when I think Ivy League credentials still impressed a Canadian boss. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And I had no experience in journalism. Um, but, you know, I, my CV superficially indicated that I was a smart person and had done smart things. And they hired me for the editorial board. And that was 24 years ago. And uh, wow. so you had just put in your application to the National Post. Not did you? No. So just to be, my, I had written for something called Saturday Night Magazine, which okay. existed until God, until about 10 or 15 years ago. The editor of that was a guy named Ken White, uh, who ended up being the founding editor of National Post. So I had uh, a connection there. Uh, so Conrad Black hired this guy, Ken White. He became, he started hiring people for the National Post. He knew my name because I'd written for him at Saturday Night Magazine. And and the Canadian publishing world then and now is, is a tiny place. And if you have somebody's mm-hmm. phone number or email address, um, you're kind of 80% of the way there. Um, yeah, and so that's how things started. And then, you know, editorials, columns, reporting, books, Podcast, dog shampoo, ghostwriting, you know, <laughs> the usual well, stuff, yeah. the usual yeah, you, you, yeah, you yeah. stuff. You just glossed over yada, 24 yada, years. Yada, 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 yada. <laughs> well, well how, how, do you, how do you juxtapose your perspectives on media uh, 24 years ago or 15 years ago as compared to today, to today in terms of some of the, the issues that we're faced with today? Is it is it that there's so much more transparent that we can see them all through social media and they were, were still present then or is that is it that social media is completely transformed oh, the entire social, social media is culture. completely transformed like, just to give you an indication when i started off in the late 90s uh the big challenge that we foresaw was um was a problem of technology and economics is that mm-hmm. um from a rev from a revenue Business model perspective. Yeah, because yeah. Uh, suddenly a newspaper wasn't something you subscribed to and it was delivered by somebody or you bought it in a kiosk. It was something you got on your computer. And this is before the age of smartphones, by the way. This is 1998. Mm-hmm. iPhone didn't come out for a couple of years. 
Um, but, you know, we already were cognizant that if people are getting newspapers free on their desktop computers, there's, again, before the age of tablets, before the age of Android, iPhone, all that stuff, um, that was the big challenge. It was seen as a technological and, um, and economic challenge. And when social media came along, uh, again, around the you know, mid-2000s, uh, it was seen as a great way to spread content. Mm -hmm. What no one foresaw was that it would also be a way for people within the profession to tribalize ideologically and become mm -hmm. ideological enforcers. Um, and I don't know how much your background extends to that period, but I can tell you that in the, you know, this is going back, say going back 15 years, people who were protective of intellectual pluralism were primarily focused on the traditional threat from big government. So <laughs> there's a lot of focus on provincial and, and federal, here in Canada, provincial and federal, uh, say, human rights legislation that served to, to effectively censor certain kind of content. I don't mm -hmm. know if the name, you know, Ezra Levant, Mark Stein, these are conservative figures who are central yep. to this. And uh, these are controversial people. And... Yeah, um, people can have their views on them. But the point is that it was seen that the threat to free speech was from the it was the same threat that had existed during the 20th century, that it was a centralized, um, as some people saw, it, like sort of dictatorially minded monolith that was mm -hmm. telling us what we could say, what we could write, what we could broadcast. Um, and then what no one foresaw, I certainly didn't foresee it, was that as social media developed, <laughs> the government kind of faded into the background for the most mm -hmm. part in terms of de facto censorship. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, and I, and I don't even think censorship is the right word because censorship mm -hmm. has, has a legal top-down connotation. Right. But if you spend your day as a pundit, you're primarily focused on, well, what are the kinds of things you're allowed to say on social media? And social media is not controlled by government for the most part, mm -hmm. although obviously there's a regulatory aspect uh, to certain parts of it, uh, but it's controlled largely by like a half dozen uh, billionaires in one, in one maybe even a trillionaire, I don't I haven't kept track, um, who, who with a flick of the switch uh, just can deactivate your account. And this really has nothing to do with government. A lot of it has to do with intellectual fashion. But even more so, like putting aside, I mean, you know, <laughs> most of us aren't concerned with, well, how many swastikas can I put on my Twitter account before? Like, <laughs> even if you're not doing hate speech or anything like that, mm -hmm. putting aside the issue of losing your account or anything like that, for most people in the media, um, a, well, I'm not sure most, but a lot of people in the media, a concern is the crowdsourced... Um, and again, censorship isn't the right word, the crowdsourced judgment of your peers. So, mm -hmm. you know, if I click like on this tweet, will that anger my conservative friend? If I retweet this, mm -hmm. does this anger my progressive friend? What's my brand now? Like, and, mm -hmm. and, and I've seen this on both sides of the spectrum because I worked at a conservative, news, conservative newspaper and then I worked at a progressive magazine. And um, yeah, so more and more you get into ideological silos. Now, this is huge because human beings are tribalized creatures. We, we instinctively organize into tribes for self-protection. Um, you know, in an earlier stage of human development, this was primarily a physical phenomenon. Now, 
in an electronic world, we've duplicated the idea of geographically isolated tribes, but in an uh, electronic way. And what, what happened, and it happened fairly quickly, is that instead of the main organizing tribal component being your media outlet, so like, you know, as recently as 15 years ago, if you were at the National Post, it was like National Post versus Globe and Mail versus Toronto mm-hmm. Star. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm at the CBC. We're better than CTV. Um, it was it was like college football, but with uh, media conglomerates. Um, and then very quickly, over the, over the space of a couple of years, that changed. And then the dominant tribalizing paradigm became your ideology. And so mm-hmm. you would have people within organizations calling each other out. This happened famously at the New York Times a couple of years ago with James Bennett, the op-ed editor, uh, and Barry Weiss, who, mm-hmm. uh, who left to create her own incredibly successful substack. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and we're now seeing it this week as we record. I don't know when this will be broadcast, but we're seeing it um, with a woman who just left the CBC. Mm-hmm. And so instead of it being the tribal unit being the, the media conglomerate, the tribal unit is now um, the ideological brand, and there usually, but not always, is an overlap between the ideological brand and the, the media conglomerate. But often, in, in the most interesting uh, and, and bizarre and unsettling cases, um, when, they're, when those things don't align, you get witch hunts, as I would see them, within these outlets. And this can be conservative stuff, like you saw this during the Trump years with uh, you know, Fox News and and conservative outlets sort of drumming out their, to my mind, reasonable people who who didn't align mm-hmm. with the, with the Trump cult. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you saw you saw that in two thousand with progressive outlet outlets going after people who weren't seen as on board with the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and and you know both things I, I find followed the same kind of um, highly tribalized group dynamics. So when you, when you talk about censorship from the government back when you were at the National Post and traditional media, what were the main concerns that government or what were the main things that government would censor mainstream news outlets for? Or what were those for the major fears at that time? So uh, it, it's, it's really impossible to talk about that period without considering the effect of 9-11. Because after 9-11, there was a, a real fear and, and, <laughs> and, and a tragically real fear about apocalyptic mass casualty, mass casualty terrorism being conducted in the name of militant Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result, you had, so I alluded obliquely to this Mark Stein and Ezra Levant. These were Canadian, Mark Stein is quasi-Canadian, I guess. Um, commentators who, who really aggressively highlighted what they regarded as the existential threat from militant Islam. And, and, and often in ways that liberals, I guess we would call them progressives now, mm-hmm. um, were up in arms about and said, well, this is Islamophobia, uh, you're demonizing a whole group of people. Um, and, and they would counter, says, no, no, it's, you know, these are people who, who have hijacked the, the Islam in favor of Islamism, uh, but you know there were commenta- some commentators who genuinely were Islamophobic. I know conservatives mm-hmm. don't like that term, but I use it. I mean, mm-hmm. anti-Semitism exists, Islamophobia exists, racism exists, um, 
And so the fear was that we can't have a conversation about security policy. We can't have a conversation about safeguarding airports and airliners. We can't have an honest conversation about foreign policy uh, without worrying about censorship being conducted in the name of protecting Muslims from Islamophobia. And, and, I see, yeah. And, and, 90, okay. and by the way, 99% of the time, the it wasn't about actual censorship. It was about the fear of censorship, which is not an illegitimate conversation because the effect of censorship, most of the effect of an act of censorship is to discourage other people from saying something similar. It's not just the one person, the out, one outlet that suffers the censorship. Right. So mm-hmm. that, that was the dominant fear. Um, and I, I tell people what's ironic now is so when I'm online, you know, uh, manning the barricades in my, uh, <laughs> in my self-valorizing um, <laughs> self-conception in favor of free speech and in favor of ideological pluralism, some of my most loyal and often funny and acerbic allies, if I can talk about allyship, hashtag allyship, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that I have found are, are Muslims. And, and often here in Canada, it's, um, it's Iranian Canadians who have come from, who fled Iran after 1979, after mm-hmm. uh, the Islamic Revolution there. It's people who came from Afghanistan or Pakistan or other Muslim countries where they felt they couldn't say what they believed because there were... These were either theocracies or there were theocratic elements within the society that were saying, you can't say that because it's, it's anti-Islamic or whatnot. And then they come to Canada and in the present atmosphere, they see what they regard and what I regard as a kind of an- analogy to that, where we have essentially s- secular religious faiths surrounding, say, indigenous issues or Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter, and they speak out of, uh, against it. And, um, and, and so I tell conservatives not only is Islamophobia real, and, and you should avoid it because its bigotry is just inherently bad, but Muslim, here in Canada, Muslim Canadians, Muslim Americans, they're some of your greatest natural allies against um, conformist ideological trends, against um, heresy hunting on the left and the right, because they've seen it in many cases. I don't want to generalize, but Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. In many cases, they have seen it from countries where they once lived. And if you alienate them, like from a, a strictly putting aside just bigotry is, is morally wrong, from a self interested perspective, if you alienate these people, well, you know, who's, you have only yourself to blame if they just end up flocking to the progressive cancel culture left because their association with conservatives uh, is, is answers to the stereotype of progressive critics. Mm. How does how does that land with your conservative friends? And are your are your conservative friends generally ideologically positioned, or are they conservative from a traditional uh, small C conservative perspective, in that they have fundamental values and principles that they adhere to, but can be open minded about that type of? I think it depends depends on people's age. Um, mm, yeah. You're now you're being ageist. Is that what I'm hearing? Oh yeah. Well, I may just <laughs> I may just against myself because so uh, you know. Look, I'm in my fifties now, and, and I think the older a journalist or a pundit or uh, those those <laughs> whatever you call yourself, the, the older you get, the harder you have to work to escape your your experiences. So if mm-hmm. if you're somebody 
who, like me, began their journalistic career in the in, in the 9/11 era, um, you, you really have to work hard to say, look, it's you know, it's been more than 20 years since 9/11. We live in a different world. Muslims themselves have been more than awakened to the horrors of Islamist terrorism. The vast majority of the terrorism victims since 9-11 have been Muslims in Muslim countries, like Iraq uh, and Afghanistan. And we live in a different world. We're, you know, this is not the world of you know, late 2001 or the years thereafter where um, you know, it, was, it was a clash of civilizations in, in the way that Samuel Huntington set it out. Um, and if you're still in that world, if you still see the culture war through that lens, you're going to be out of touch. We, um, mm -hmm. Again, it's, terrorism is still a threat, just as racism will always be a threat. Um, like any religion, Muslim can be uh, co-opted by people who are completely intolerant. There are still Muslim countries that are theocratic in nature. All that is true. But if, if that's the thing you keep coming back to, when you're looking at, say, threats to democracy or threats to open liberal societies, you know, here in North America or in Europe, if, if like that's your only lens, you're, you're going to look out of touch and you're going to put people off and you're not going to be relevant because that's, mm -hmm. that's not the dominant threat to the liberal society anymore. The dominant threat right. to liberal societies is, is now right-wing populism and left-wing uh, progressive... Uh, not even sure people call it uh, identitarianism or you know they obsess about critical race theory I, I'm not mm -hmm. sure I'm not sure these labels are helpful because it doesn't they don't really capture the obsession with with group designations that exist among progressives um, and, and and 15 minutes after the show is broadcast there'll be some new term you know wokeism or like even wokeism mm -hmm. I, I think sounds like an antiquated term um, but whatever term you want to apply that's the threat from progressives and then, you know, again, the same problem with nomenclature on the right, you know, Trumpism, populism, um, alt-rightism or whatever it was called 15 minutes ago, um, on the right side of the spectrum. To me, those are the mm. dominant threats to our liberal political order, um, as opposed to what existed after 9-11 being the main threat. Mm. And I want to talk about those those terms and, and the CBC uh component as well um i, I want to fast forward just on your career so you're you were at the walrus is from 2014 through 2017 as editor-in-chief is that a was that the left more progressive magazine or, or when you juxtapose your your experience being with the national post which is more on the conservative bend is the walrus the more uh liberal um so or, or, I, I don't yeah. know, sorry, I, I didn't educate myself about who your audience is, but for those who are outside Canada, and, and I guess who are, who are outside the, the Toronto um, media silo, uh, well, presumably the National Post is a, yeah, a conservative-leaning newspaper, or what passes for conservative in Canada. Uh, mm -hmm. most, of, most of the content would be seen as sort of like fairly centrist, I think, in the United States. Um, yeah, and the walrus... As a Toronto-based uh, monthly print magazine uh, run out of downtown Toronto, it's 
it's hyper progressive by the standards of mainstream Canadian politics, but its politics are very much, I would say, centrist or in keeping with like the main thrust of a lot of what you'd see on the CBC or just mm-hmm. um, like sort of Canadian literary and arts magazines uh, more generally. Um, you know, all these all these things are relative. Uh, you know, there, there are probably many hyper-progressive <laughs> uh, Canadian media critics who, who think the walrus is too conservative, even after, right, right. Even after I left it. Um, yeah, I was there uh, for two years, roughly two years. Um, uh, between, yeah, I, guess, I think I, I sort of really started showing up for January 2015, and then I left in early 2017. Um, not a long time, although it did give me a look at um, some of the issues affecting that media silo. And again, this goes mm-hmm. back to what we we're talking about social media, is that uh, when the, you know, the walrus, walrus has been around for almost 20 years now, but when it started out, um, it, it was sort of like National Post versus Globe. Like, you know, it was sort of walrus versus Maclean's versus, you know, other, other magazines, um, but then by the time I, I was there, I mean, this had been going on for years, is that the main kind of, of tribal organizing principle, certainly within like the, the small professionally incestuous world of uh, high concept Canadian magazine journalism, it, it was all about the relationships among editors and writers who were constantly ideologically policing themselves on social media, primarily Twitter. And the frustrations that I had, and I think the frustrations that a lot of people have, even if they don't share my politics, in that world is that, again, it has nothing to do with, with top-down censorship or anything like that. Um, it's the policing that takes place horizontally uh, mm-hmm. among editors and writers at the same publication or at other publications or at the CBC or whatnot, or, you know, they're professors, they're activists, the whole sort of constellation of people in that world. And sometimes professionally they, they move back and forth or they have dual roles. Um, that's, that's, that's why sort of like the editorial content you'll read in Narwhal or Walrus or Blubber Tusk or Briar Patch or Briar Bitch or like, you know, just there's like 50 of these magazines. It's, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. because they're all policing each other and it's this sort of like homogenous thing that's primarily focused on environment, feminism, race, uh, gender, sort of like the usual topics. Um, yeah. and, 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 and even if, even if you agree with their ideological position, position on this, it's, it's the crushing sameness of the messaging mm-hmm. of it all that I think, I think even people in that world, and I'm not, I'm not in that world and I guess I never was in that world, but I think in their candid moments, they would they would tell you that's it's a real issue, and it, and it wouldn't exist without government subsidies. All of these places, although the walrus, to its credit, most of its money comes from raising money through private charitable enterprise mm-hmm. or um, mm-hmm. corporate content speaking events. So, to its credit, it it raises most of its own money. But ninety nine percent of these magazines wouldn't exist without you and you and me paying our taxes and right. paying our right. salaries. Yeah, and so. You're, would you consider yourself to be a journalist now? And I guess I asked that question because you mentioned your political uh, leanings. And, you know, you probably get it from both sides in terms yeah. of, uh, you know, and we can talk about the 
the comments that I received having you on about being a transphobe. So that would be coming from, yeah. you know, um, a certain side. And then, you know, you probably get it from the other side as well. And how do you, how do you label yourself if you use a label? You know, I've heard people talk about heterodox liberalism, alt center, you know, like those type of those. Have you, have you ever heard? Uh, no, I haven't heard alt, that one. Yeah. Oh, you haven't heard that one. No, alt no, 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 I just heard that. that the other day. That has a bad that has a bad brand connotation to it. But uh, do you do you do you put yourself in a box or do you try to avoid that at all costs? Um, I mean, I'm a journalist in the sense that uh, I'm an editor and a podcaster for a journalistic outlet, which is Quillette. Uh, and I, I write regularly for the National Post, which is, is a newspaper. But social media has blurred these uh, contours because mm -hmm. if you're on social media for 15 minutes, unless all you're posting about is your butterfly collection and the weather outside, you're probably going to say things that verge into what some people would regard as activism. Mm -hmm. um, in my case, probably more than most, because I don't really, you know, pull punches on social media and it's mm -hmm. not, it's not in my character. In fact, one of the reasons that I was scandalously unqualified to be editor of a place like the Walrus is that I, I don't have the self-control to not say what I think on social mm -hmm. media. So my, mm -hmm. my, predecessor, my predecessor at the Walrus was a guy who'd been in the business for decades. He was highly respected. Um, you know, he was just like a real uh, grandee of Canadian arts and letters. And I think there's, there was an expectation that when I took over his job, that I was going to put aside my... Um, more fiery <laughs> mm -hmm. social mm -hmm. media hot takes and um and i was going to kind of mature into that kind of more august decorous um sort of elder statesman of journalism role right um, yeah i mean the money was really good and you know big office and it was sort of like well here put this sash around your shoulders and you know hold your head up um you know lots of three martini lunches and, and so forth but but that that wasn't who i am and I, I think you know the person to blame for that mismatch was me like i mm -hmm. i imagined that well i'll just redefine this role as the john k role <laughs> but right right um people don't change institutions institutions change people and mm -hmm. and i was ego ego egocentric enough to imagine that i was the exception to that <laughs> um so but but all of this to say that unless you're going to be that elder, elder statesman figure you know delete yourself and by the way this guy i'm describing was not on, definitely not on social media right mm -hmm. um but so you kind of have a choice that if you are on social media if you're outspoken if you're on podcasts like this one like i've probably said 50 things on this podcast already depending on how you edit it i don't know that that people would say well that that's an activist thing to say you know you're, mm -hmm. you're for mm -hmm. this you're against this um which which blurs the lines there's absolutely no question yeah and and i think you said journalism versus activism but now we also have science versus advocacy um as well taking place and so that's where you know for somebody who's trying to get to what is the closest thing to the truth 
that you can possibly yeah. find, it becomes near impossible, particularly if you're on Twitter or something like that, which is just a cesspool of um, negativity, which I, I thrive in. But, um, and by the way, my butterfly collection is one of the areas that I told you not to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> <Sorry>. um, <laughs> but so you let, I just want to get to the, the cultural appropriation story of, of your life. And I know that wasn't the reason why you had left um, the walrus, but you started wading into these waters around, um, I wouldn't call this activism, but just your personal opinion on a subject as it pertained to, um, I think at the time it was the, uh, remind me the name, Hal, he has a difficult last name to spell, had written a... Oh, Hal Nazwecki. Nazwecki, yes. He had written a piece about uh, how every... By the way, we're, I'm, that's 90% there on the pronunciation. I've actually met him. He's a, he's a super guy. But I don't think we're pronouncing it right. So I'd just like yeah, well, to... We'll, 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 yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll fact check that and put it in the notes for Hal. Okay. Sorry to Hal in advance. But he um, he had written a piece about how every writer should... I'm going to paraphrase this. Every writer should try consider writing from the perspective of of the other or someone other than yeah, themselves. Yeah, no, that's that's and, that's a, that's not quite. He his piece was kind of satirical. What was interesting about Hal's piece, um, and and Hal's doing doing well. He's like he's got his own magazine, and he's um, I got lots of time for Hal. But Hal at the time was editor in chief of the in-house publication for I think it was called the Canadian Writers Union. Yes, yeah. And I think the magazine was called Write. Like, yeah, I think it had an, maybe with an exclamation mark at the end or like UP or, you know, Yahoo, right, right. Yahoo. But, but what was what was interesting about his case is I had been a writer for almost 20 years and I'd never heard of this in-house publication and I'd never mm. heard of the organization. It was just one of these like bloated, to my mind, rather purposeless organizations. You know what? I don't want to say it. maybe for all I know, they do good work and they right. uh, um, help imprisoned writers. But you and, think you should have heard about it if you were uh, yeah, a prominent writer yeah. in Canada. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll let others decide whether I deserve to be called prominent, but I'd been around. And and he wrote this like fairly satirical piece, like Hal had actually done an incredible amount in his career and continues to do a huge amount, like showcasing indigenous writers, uh, writers who don't look like you and me, certainly. He was like one of the tribe in terms of like, progressive Canadian arts and letters, Canlet, as is sometimes known. Um, but he wrote this satirical piece, which plainly suggested that, that he thought that to some extent this campaign to put people into boxes from a literary point of view just had gone too far, which it plainly mm -hmm. had. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, it went even further. And the, God, I think it was Canadian Writers Union, is that the name? I think so. They just, they convened this really Stalinist, like, show trial type thing and denounced him and put out a statement. Like, it, it wasn't quite the beginning of this creepy era where, like, organizations fire people all the time. That's fine. Um, mm -hmm. Someday Quillette will fire me, and with good reason. But it, that's, it's, you know, hockey teams, if you know, you're not scoring goals, you know, you're gone. And it was perfectly within their rights to chuck out Hal. Um, but that's not what they did. First, they had to humiliate him. Like if the Toronto Maple Leafs eventually get rid of Campbell as their goalie, I, I guarantee they're not going to like convene a subcommittee called like, you know, the committee on, 
unnatural f- hockey activities or whatever. And they're not going to like, you know, taking complaints from fans who feel they have been morally injured by Campbell's performance. Right. The five-fold committee. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. like they're, <laughs> they're just going to fire him or trade him or whatever, mm-hmm. which, which mm-hmm. but that should happen more in Canadian media. There's just, there's a lot of unhappy people mm. who six months from now would be happier if, if they were fired um, or quit. But, but that's not what they did. They had to humiliate him. And the whole thing was a public exercise to prove the ideological bona fides of the people who were humiliating him. It was a spectacle that was recognizable to anyone who's lived in, you know, a theocratic society, a communist society, um, a cult. And I'm very careful that Canada is not a totalitarian society. Like, mm-hmm. no one's listening to this podcast as we record it to make sure that, you know, you and I aren't dragged off to the gulag. But it's the totalitarian impulse that says that we're going to humiliate you because otherwise, unless we do that, they'll come for us next. That's a totalitarian impulse. And that's what happened to Hal. And what Hal said was basically, again, it was a semi-satirical piece he wrote. He was, I think he was pointing out the folly of, of going too far in saying that, you know, if you are a purple-skinned, genderqueer carpenter, the only characters you can write in your books are purple-skinned, genderqueer carpenters. Um, or maybe mauve-skinned or violet-skinned if you educate yourself appropriately. And that's clearly gone too far. It's one of the reasons no one reads Canadian books anymore. It's, just, it's all this nonsense. And um, he was pilloried for it. And, mm. and, and I tweeted about it. The backstory in this is really interesting because, again, this, this goes to how flamboyantly unqualified I was for that job at the wars because... At the time this was happening, this is really interesting, this was early 2017, uh, the Walrus at the time had convened like this especially grandiose speaking tour. Uh, and this was like some of the biggest companies in Canada. We were making tons of cash from it. Like banks and mining companies would pay $100,000 a pop to put their name on these like Walrus wow. spe- speaking events. Oh no, it's completely, um, completely profitable. And again, this is all, this isn't government money. This is, mm-hmm. you know, this is uh, on the up and up. Um, but it was done in a very patriotic way, like the national anthem was played, right, mm. at, at, some, mm-hmm. at some of these early events. And what happened was this is around the time of Canada 150, which was mm-hmm. Canada's 150th anniversary of its birth, which turned into this bizarre, like, national shame spiral, where, like, instead of celebrating Canada, it was just, that was when we started talking about how we just were, like, this horrifying genocide state like Nazi Germany or, you know, 1994 Rwanda. Uh, and people went nuts, the CBC. And in a matter of a few days at these events, um, they, they stopped singing the national anthem. And it started being more like what we recognize today of like mm. hanging your heads and, um, you know, land acknowledgments. And maybe they were already doing land acknowledgments. Mm-hmm, I forget. Mm-hmm. But like in a very short period of time, it went from hooray for Canada to Canada, um, you know, land of the great genocide and it was made pretty clear that we're going all in on this like um you know it's sort of like uh i forget who it was it might have been orwell who talked about how um back back in the day you know the back in the days of the bolsheviks and the mensheviks uh if you were at a meeting and you went to the bathroom you could come back and 
say something that was a thought crime because you'd missed whatever <laughs> e- e- edict, yeah, yeah. edict had been. And that's kind of the way it was. It's like, oh, here's the memo. Canada is no longer a great place. It's a horrifying genocide state. And, and by the way, cultural appropriation, you know, if you're not a purple-skinned, genderqueer carpenter, you can only write about people like you. And if you disagree with that, then you're just another genocidaire um, and you're worse than Hitler. That thing happened really quick. And I, I wanted absolutely no part of that. And I said, mm-hmm. as, I said as much. I wrote a piece for the National Post about it. And, you know, at the time, I was really frustrated by what I thought as this very cultish direction that uh, Canlet was taking, and which is still taking. I mean, it's, just, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's appalling. Even people in Canlet will, will, well, we just, you know, we saw someone at the CBC who talked about it openly um, this week as we're recording. Can, 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 can we can we can we shift to that because um no no well before I'm, i want to finish my mea culpa yes, yes because it was made abundantly clear to me that 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 the walrus and the walrus was not unusual everyone was going all in on this mm-hmm. or everyone in that world and that if i wanted to be on the team like you know you're going to go all in on this too and there was no way i was going to do that um uh, and, and that's but uh, interestingly, like the reason I quit was much more mundane. It was, but this exacerbated it. Like mm-hmm. because in that kind of climate, it's very hard to have professional trust because you're always again. If everybody else, if their ideological brand depends on X, and your ideological brand is well, X is cultish and stupid, mm-hmm. you can't trust each other. And, and by the yeah. way, these are good yeah. people. The people I work with are good people, and I'm friends with mm-hmm. many of them, and I respect them. Some of them are still at the wall, or some of them are not. But in that kind of climate, if I'm a Bolshevik and you're a Menshevik, then, you know, it's only a matter of time till your friends accuse me of being uh, a deviationist and a capitalist mm-hmm. wrecker and a saboteur and a kulak uh, and vice versa. So, uh, yeah, so it was only a matter of time until I quit. And, um, and, and, and it's a shame because uh, I think it... It was an unpleasant experience for a lot of people, including me. Like I just, mm-hmm. I, people see what I write on Twitter and they just assume like, mm-hmm. oh, this guy thrives on conflict. Mm-hmm. I think people who know me in my personal life, like, I don't know, from things like disc golf and board games, like that's not who I am. I, I, I like mixing it up in an abstract ideological way, but to, to fight with people you work with and respect and, and like, like that. I don't like that. That sucks. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. anyway, so I just want to finish the mea culpa part yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah sorry. And, and was it difficult for you to take that leap to resign for ideological or philosophical reasons? No, no, it, no. But it was it was difficult for um, for social reasons because, um, like, I realized at the point I wasn't just quitting a job. I was quitting like a subculture. And I was quitting mm-hmm. um, like sort of a, a set of rules governing the way that little. And I realized that like, a, you know, I, I think this is so, something that pleases everyone that like, it's not like I was leaving the walrus and six weeks later, I take a job at Narwhal or something or like, it's, it's not right, right. like I, I wasn't, I was quitting that world. And, and I think there was a sense, and I think this probably happened all across Canada in all kinds of professional and artistic communities where like you have to make a choice. Um, Canada has a new state religion, and the state religion is it's a religion of self-abasement, where we we talk endlessly about how Canada is a horrifying genocide state built on a mountain of skulls, 
of Indigenous children. And unless that becomes the organizing principle for how you view Canada, you're not going to be on the CBC. Um, mm-hmm. although, although CBC, to its credit, when I quit the Walrus, I actually was on the National a few days later talking about why I quit. Like these were the yeah, yeah. That, that's unimaginable in in 2022. Um, and the person interviewing me, of, ironic not ironically, I guess it makes sense, was Wendy Mesley, who herself got her own Hal Nesweki moment. Um, when, oh, she did. Oh, yeah. Oh no, she was okay. she was shamed, and you know she was a, a, absolutely groundbreaking. Uh, female feminist newscaster mm-hmm. at the CBC had put in decades of service there, absolutely chucked under the bus because someone less than half her age accused her of, of being a racist. Just absolutely appalling. Probably the most disgusting moment in, in, the, in the, of the many disgusting moments that the CBC has had in recent years. But that's wow. a digression. Well, no, maybe it's a, a jumping <laughs> off point yeah. because I, I, by the, I watched that uh, that video with you and Wendy last night. Uh, so let's let's talk about what's happening at the CBC. And it's to, to your point about things changing by the minute. You know, I have one WhatsApp chat with all of my best friends. And so, you know, there's a variety of opinions about everything. And so, you know, you get the article from the CBC about, um, remind me of her name, is it Tara Henley? Yeah. Or what? Tara Henley's article about why she left. And then now there's the Gawker rebuttal. And then there's the rebuttal to the Gawker piece saying that, oh, there's specific employment requirements at this team, blah, blah, blah. And so all of a sudden it's been like, I've read five minutes worth of this information. It's been point, counterpoint, point. And now there's going to be another counterpoint. And for somebody who doesn't have time to spend uh, a half hour even to try to unpack okay who's jonathan k if you're writing about it because you gotta you gotta dig deeper than just your article you'd want to do a background on what where you educated where did you work but people don't do that so how does somebody unpack this cbc article in a way that gets the closest to the truth possible in your opinion first of all i just like to start off with the meta which is here's you and me talking about the people who are talking about Tara Henley, who herself is talking about the way the CBC talks about Canada. <laughs> like, everything about this epitomizes the fact that 99% of Canadians who have real jobs think we're just the most insufferable, sanctimonious, yeah. irrelevant yeah. douchebags. Mm. And, yes. and, and, like, we're wasting our lives... Talking Mm -hmm. about conversations, about conversations, about conversations. And this is what social media does, right? It's like this Russian doll thing where, (laughs) um, uh, (laughs) uh, and and putting, yeah, left or right, it's it's very difficult to see how a Canadian has like a real job, you know, like they're a teacher or they're a police officer or they're a fireman or uh, they run a small business or something like that. They they increasingly don't see themselves represented by the kind of discussions we're having. Like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I have neighbors and friends who will watch this kind of podcast, but they're not watching it because it has anything to do with their life. They're watching it because they want 
um, they want to hear me, <laughs> you know, make a joke or they right. want to see you skewer me on some point or something like that. And it's the same reason they, they follow these dra- these melodramas on Twitter. It has nothing mm-hmm. to do with their lives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's reality social media. It's it, reality absolutely. TV. We, yeah. are, we are the desperate yeah. housewives <laughs> of douchebag Canadian Twitter. Yes, I don't, even, I, don't, I don't even want to give myself that much credit as like yeah. that, to be a desperate housewife. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm whatever beneath that is. Without, 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 uh, you're Jersey Shore. So, <laughs> I, um, and so, so the short, the short synopsis of this is that Tara uh, worked for a long time with the CBC and also has uh, a side gig. She's written a book, like many people who. I guess, like me, the reason I quit the Walrus is that um, she has, she's not dependent on, on her, she wasn't dependent right. on her, you know, she had side gigs going on. And in my case, that side gig was ghostwriting in the National Post, and um, which gives you some independence. And and her piece, which was subsequently reproduced, she put it on Substack, and then it went, it was published by the National Post. The National Post put it on the front page. Uh, I'm a print subscriber of the National Post and New York Times, so I, I saw it there. Um, she called out the CBC for all the things anyone who's at the CBC or has passed through the CBC knows that it's become this place where, um, you know, CBC has run, and I know this because someone did a thread on it, they've run half a dozen recent articles on the importance of being able to get a non-binary haircut. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. Um, you know, for the for the 17 people in Canada who care about that bullshit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and people wonder, gee, I wonder why no one's listening to the CBC and no, one, no one's watching the CBC. You know, you list, look at the list of, I think, 20 most popular programs in Canada. There's like, there's no CBC, maybe one or two. Like, it's, 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 mm-hmm. gar- it's garbage. And it's not because the people at the CBC are stupid. It's not because CBC doesn't get enough money. It's because institutional failure means that the grown-ups in the building are basically staring at their shoes while people who were in college three years ago are running content that's designed to appease their friends on social media. And they don't care if anyone's watching or listening. And the few times that people actually do watch and listen, they see it and they're horrified. And they say, this is crap. Mm. Uh, and there's a guy named uh, Kelly Nestruck, works, writes uh, arts writer for The Globe. He tweeted out something... Uh, again, this is part of Desperate Housewives. It's like, you know, my breaking news, guy tweets something, oh, you know. I'm all, I'm all ears. <laughs> well, he tweeted out, it's interesting, he's, he's a smart guy. And he said, and he's like way more progressive than me, but he tweeted out, he says, look, just let's take a step back here. Even if you're a progressive, even if you're, even if you're a liberal, the CBC needs scrutiny. And, because if you don't scrutinize it, the people who are going to control the agenda, even if it's not today, eventually, they're going to be the people who say defund the CBC, clean house, figuratively, you know, burn the mm-hmm. place down. Uh, not not really burn the place down, Harsha Walla. You know, figuratively burn the place down. That's a reference some mm-hmm. people will get in Western Canada. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he's right, because history moves in cycles. Uh, and if, if fair-minded progressives, liberals, centrists, whatever, don't take this moment to reform the CBC, because, I mean, it really has become a garbage dump, um, then eventually what, what's going to happen is it's just, you know, the years are going to pass and some conservative prime minister is going to say, this, 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 is, this is a f- festered long enough and 
right? I don't think they're going to get rid of it. But it's going to become mm -hmm. what happens in some of these, like, these nationalist governments in Europe, like, you know, Hungary under Orban or, um, or what's happening, you know, this is maybe apocalyptic, but what's happened to, to pop culture and media culture in, in Poland, uh, and to some extent under Trump, where there's this nationalist, populist, right-wing counter-reaction to what mm -hmm. is derided as an out-of-touch progressive media. And then you get something that's just as bad or worse. You get a demagogic, mm -hmm. hyper-nationalistic media. I don't want that. I don't mm -hmm. want the CBC to be the Canadian version of what whatever's on the Hungarian version of the CBC under Orban. Um, I want... Um, you know, something I used to listen to, this is, you know, here I am like a, <laughs> an old guy, you know, Abraham Simpson, like back in the day, <laughs> I used to drive home from the national post building. This is when it was in the suburbs. I used to drive home at 6 PM and I used to listen to, as it happens, mm -hmm. um, which was sort of like the, you know, the afternoon or evening talk show. This is back in, you know, Mary Lou Finley was on, it was. This is before it was like Carol off lecturing everyone about their pronouns and stuff. Like it was, mm -hmm. an, it was an actual show people listened to and were interested in, as opposed to just kind of like a clubhouse for whatever 25-year-old Ryerson grads were putting on Twitter. And, and I miss that. Like it was nice. I, I'm mm -hmm. a Canadian. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I, I like having mm -hmm. the CBC. I'd like, mm -hmm. to get, I'd like to get it back. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and Kelly Nestruck is right. Um, if... If progressives and you know now that Trudeau's in power, and and they still control the commanding heights of culture and policy in this country, if they don't clean house, it's it, they're not going to like what happens in a couple of years. When I don't know if it's next year, or five years from now, eventually it's the conservatives who are going to clean house, and they're absolutely not going to like what happens there. Why is it that such a small faction of Canada? has such an outsized influence on the ideologies that CBC promotes. Because they're motivated. And, and, and let's give them credit. So this is a, a you're going to be sorry you had me on the show because I'm just, I, I dig, digression to digression. I was in, Can, I was in um, Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, uh, for a summer vacation with my family. And, and we spent some of our time historically touring. We got someone to tour us around the historic sites of Charlottetown. Uh, this is when all your international listeners just like turn the podcast off. And we learned about how Canada was created in the 1860s. And mm -hmm. Char Charlottetown and later Quebec City, of course, played a key role in that history. It's a history. I had no idea of any of this history. I hadn't educated myself about it. And here I am. I'm supposed to be this pundit on the ramparts, you know, defending our conception of Canada from these historical revisionists who hate Canada but mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm in my 50s. I never bothered to, to really educate myself about the Canadian story. We were hearing these stories about John A. Macdonald and you know, these, these drunken escapades in Charlottetown. <laughs> and it's, I mean, as national foundational myths go, it, I mean, it's like earns a D rating. It's, it's just, but it's interesting. <laughs> but 99% but, but of people in Canada don't, aren't interested in it, haven't educated themselves in it. And what happens is you get a fairly small group of ideologically motivated people who say, hey, I have another conception of what Canada is. It's a horrifying genocide state like Nazi Germany, and we're a bunch of white supremacists. Now, there's very few people who believe this, but the people who do believe it, give them credit 
they're active. They go on social media. They take mm, over mm-hmm. activist organizations. They take over professional organizations. Uh, you know, here in Ontario, uh, for a brief period, they took over the what rebranded itself as the Bar Association and forced people to sign on to something called a statement of principles, which is like, you know, you, you would write about how committed you are to principles of equity and diversity. Like it was, it was essentially compelled speech. And th- mm-hmm. thankfully, they got rid of that. It was such an absurd thing that there was a counter reaction. But give these people credit. And sometimes I hear people say, oh, you know, the trans activists have taken over all these feminist organizations. It's like, really? They've taken them over? Or is it the case that you have these feminist organizations that for a long time became fairly sleepy, were run by, you know, Bay Street grand dams who kind of like lost interest in their purpose and some very smart, highly motivated to my mind, ideologically radicalized people said, hey, these places are ripe for a takeover. And they did. Uh, sometimes they compare some of these uh, gender and race activists to Marxists. Personally, I don't think that's it's a fair comparison because Marxists actually cared about the working class, whereas a lot of these race and gender activists primarily care about um, things that are mostly of interest to to graduate students, like mm-hmm, questions mm-hmm. of symbology and language. But they are alike in one respect, is that if you look at the history of the October Revolution, 1917, the reason Lenin was able to take over the Russian state wasn't so much because the Bolsheviks had a mass movement, although by that time they actually did have something approaching a mass movement. It's because no one wanted to defend the incumbent regime. And Lenin like, just literally was able to walk into the halls of power because the, the, the Ancien Regime had, had so discredited itself. This is the regime that took over from, from the, the, the czars, uh, from Nicholas. Um, and, and that's kind of what's happened in Canada, is that if you have a bored, listless, mm-hmm. and largely white ruling class that doesn't care about its institutions, that doesn't care about its history. It doesn't take much for a small group of people to say, we have a narrative, we have a story, we have hashtags, we have slogans. And I saw this in microcosm at the Walrus because, um, and again, it wasn't just the Walrus, I don't want to single them out, it happened at every mm-hmm. Canadian arts institution. These institutions were largely run by aging Toronto wasps who were good fundraisers but really had no story to tell. And then a group of people said, well, we have a narrative to replace it. Mm-hmm. The previous narrative, to a large extent, had been how much better Canada is than the United States. And that kept the Canadian cultural institutions going for a while. That was their narrative, like Canada. Right, yeah, yeah. But then you had this period where Obama was the president and Stephen Har- Harper was here in mm-hmm. Canada. He's a conservative. And prog- that, that theme didn't work anymore. Right, right. How- Interesting. And that was actually a turning point in and of itself, because you no longer could, could tell people, hey, um, our narrative is that, you know, we have Medicare, we, you know, right. we have multiculturalism, they have the melting pot, you know, they have for-profit health care. Like, that narrative didn't work anymore, symbolically, because Obama was a, a progressive hero and Harper was a, pro- was a progressive boogeyman. And so it was like, what do we do now? What's our narrative? And then to... So the- what- Sorry, go ahead. And then 2017 and Canada 150 rolled around and it all kind of came together and it was like, ah, we got our narrative. Our narrative is that Canada sucks and we're white supremacists. So how do we go from 
the narrative we currently exist within and avoid going to the the opposite end of the spectrum and find this middle ground of the alt center or the heterodox liberalism thought that Quillette, um, the magazine, online magazine that you now work for, I think is, is trying to uh, capture the market of, you know, it's, and it's interesting now because I think historically being a centrist was something that didn't provoke emotion and therefore that's what made it difficult to get any traction on but now um i don't know if you'd consider colette a centrist uh organization uh heterodox it has a it has a variety of different opinions um but it seems to be evoking emotion primarily on the on the left uh and if i look at the top 10 articles that were viewed uh in 2021 through Colette, I think a lot of them were uh, critiques of leftist ideology surrounding things like race in America, cancel cults or social justice, wokeism, playing the victim, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so now you're being, Colette is being painted as a conservative or right-leaning magazine when that's really not, I think the intent or the, the mission so how do you how do you how do you how, how do you capture an audience in like like myself who's trying to find a balance between truths um, and then have enough activism within that to really transform institutions? Well, it seems as though that's a difficult to impossible task. Think about Quillette, and to get more detail, you'd have to interview my boss, who's the founding editor, Claire Lehman. I lo I love to because I, I just read that political article from 2018 about her, and uh, I can I can I, I can arrange a meeting with her people. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Do you, you know her people well? I don't. I, well, I'm, I guess I'm her people, but I I don't know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if she'd do her podcast, but I, I can guarantee she'd be a better guest than me. What I will say is that Quillette is a place for refugees ideological refugees. So mm -hmm. you, you get former conservatives like me who were repelled by Trump populism and there was no way like I was going to join, I was going to become like a writer for Fox News or something like that. It's just, it's, just, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not in me. Um, and so you get conservative refugees from, from Trumpism and then you get most of my writers are progressive refugees from wokeism mm. and again wokeism it's it seems like a stupid yeah. phrase but i i don't I, I don't know a good replacement um and i guess most of the i would say the reason quillette gets so much grief from the left is that most of our writers are leftists and people hate People may hate their enemies. What they hate more are apostates, which, by the way, is why Tara Hanley, I think I'm getting her last name right, mm -hmm. is getting such grief from progressives for this Jacques piece she wrote about her time at the CBC. They're used to people like me or, or real conservatives denouncing the CBC. What they can't abide is an apostate. And all, right. and all cults hate apostates more than they hate heretics. 
um, because the apostate is deemed to have witnessed the truth and rejected it, whereas the heretic, maybe that person wasn't exposed to the truth to begin with, and maybe they can be converted. Um, but this is, this is part of the group dynamics of all cults. And, um, and Quillette is a place that has traditionally been a refuge for people who are fleeing both kinds of cults, the Trump cult and the, um, the woke cult. And as a result, it gets defined politically by negative inference, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what are we? Well, we're, we're, not, we're not in the Trump cult and we're not in the woke cult. Um, and then the people who hate us more, it becomes a contest to see who is more protective of, of their silo. And progressives uh, for a time were. I would say for the last six months, I have certainly gotten more abuse from conservative radicals because of the vaccine issue. Mm. Um, you know, for a while it was like, oh, you're a Nazi because you think cultural appropriation is okay. Or mm-hmm. you're a Nazi because, you know, you like J.K. Rowling. Um, or you like Dave Chappelle because mm. what kind of, only a Nazi would laugh at a black comedian. And, uh, and then it happened pretty suddenly. Again, these shifts happen suddenly. I described how in 2017, Canada, among progressives, Canada went from a light unto nations to a genocide state. Um, the shift I saw among conservatives were, was sort of like you have to be, not all conservatives, I don't, but like a, there was a certain faction that unless you're anti-vax, you're, you're somehow not on the side of freedom and you're on the side of like concentration camps and despotism and, and it got, it, it got so dark so quickly. Mm-hmm. And and I tell people what what, his what has been your position on on vaccinations? I'm super pro vax. Oh, I'm and this is but, where. But I, yeah. are you are you pro mandate for no, a va- absolutely vaccine? Not, absolutely yeah. not. So I don't think you 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 can you should be forcing people to put medicine in their body. Um, I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's what happens in a free society. What's interesting though is there's a certain hypocrisy that develops in. In the because we, we focus so much on what the government does, but I went to a board game tournament in Cleveland uh, two months ago, and I would say 70% of the people in the room were like pro-vaccine, and then there was a bunch of people in the room who were anti-vaccine, and of course, this is important because you're playing board games with these people all day, and you want to find mm-hmm. out, without being intrusive, you want to find out their vaccinated, their vaccinated state. Even the people in the room who are skeptical of vaccines, in most cases because you know, I'm a journalist, so I, I ask questions, is they said, well, yeah, I, I had questions about this, but my boss said that unless we got vaccinated, we'd have to get tested every week, and we'd have to pay for the tests, and I wouldn't be able to work mm-hmm. at certain job sites. And so essentially, the mandate came from their employers. And even though a lot of these people were conservative, they grudgingly accepted the mandate that came from their employers, but they would be lo- like lose their minds if the state governor... Or mm. Um, mm-hmm. or county officials, or or the president of the United States had, had decided this kind of thing. And to a certain extent, I get that because you know um, it's less of a top-down thing. But eventually, it comes to the same place. And and most American skeptics I know, vaccine skeptics, as much as they rail against the government imposing mandates, have they've they've more succumbed with mostly a whimper to employer mandates. 
and, and often these are de facto government mandates. So a lot of the people I know in the States in these board game uh, circles, they, they work for defense contractors or they work for other companies that do a lot of work for the federal government. And to save headaches, a lot of these contractors essentially just onboard the guidelines and requirements that are imposed by federal government for their own workplaces. Because if you're a contractor, you know, who knows what workplace you're going to be going to. And so they're essentially covered by a federal mandate, even though it's under cloak of, of corporate mandate. And, and, that's, and that's why, you know, when you hear conservatives say, oh, I, I'm against government and I'm for capitalism, it's often, in, in people's lives, it's often the same thing. Like, mm-hmm. the, like does, and, and this extends to social media. Like, does it matter whether government is telling you what to say or whether, um, you know, Zuckerberg is telling you what to say? I mean, ideologically, yeah, I can see how it matters. But the progressives have a point, or at least they had a point when they talked about how corporate control it can be just as authoritarian as government control. What's ironic is that a lot of progressives champion the diktats of people like Zuckerberg and, and uh, Jeff Bezos and um, Apple, or, you know, whatever, all the corporate titans, they're all in favor of those people imposing de facto speech codes on what you can say and buy on social media or, and, you know, e-commerce more generally and, and setting rules because they like the idea of, of putting limits on what we can say and do and buy which means they're, they're, they've effectively made common cause with the richest people on the planet, despite the fact a lot of them still call themselves socialists. Right. So there's yeah. hypocrisy, hypocrisies on all sides. Yeah. And I had a back and forth with Tim Caulfield on social media because he's a, become the, you know, champion of misinformation, quote unquote. And, you know, he was critiquing Aaron Rodgers in a pretty forceful way and you know Aaron Rodgers the Green Bay Packers football quarterback who um, was not that forthcoming about getting vaccinated I think he said he was inoculated and then it turned out he wasn't vaccinated and he got COVID and then ends up he started taking some prophylactics like ivermectin whatever treatments that Joe Rogan type people have taken and you know there's talk on social media that people like uh, Aaron Rodgers Dr. Robert Malone who is on uh Joe Rogan, who did get deplatformed, um, should be taken off of Twitter because they're spreading this misinformation that's causing harm to individuals. And I'm curious about your take on that because, you know, again, my my comment there was that for me, it's my responsibility to sift through the information and find out what is true or not true. And you know, if if I think I listened to the Joe Rogan, Robert Malone podcast, I found it to be quite interesting. That's not to say that everything he said I thought was true or not. I didn't actually take the time to go and do any secondary research. And so I left saying, well, interesting, but I'm going to stick with my prevailing philosophy on how to move forward with COVID. But then he gets taken off the platform. And then the argument is, well, it's a private company. They can do whatever they want. Sure. But if you believe philosophically in freedom of speech, you should believe practically that that should not happen. That's my perspective. I, I'm curious to know what you think about that, removing Donald Trump, for example, from, from Twitter. I, I, I don't, with the exception of you know, shouting fire in a crowded theater, I, I, I'm, I'm in favor of free speech. I think Twitter can do what they want. 
um, it's 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 a company. If they want to remove my account or Joe Rogan's account or whatever, that's it's their right. I don't think it improves public health in the long run because then what happens is it turns these people into a source of forbidden knowledge, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it just gives part of the narrative becomes well, there's this forbidden knowledge we're not allowed to get it. Uh, becomes sort of samostat, and you know, from the communist era. I also think we sometimes overstate the importance of propaganda because a lot of times people do what their neighbors do, people do what their friends do. Um, there was a lot of vaccine skeptics. I, I, I'm in a very progressive neighborhood, and you know, there are progressive vaccines, vaccine skeptics who are like into health food and you know, I don't know, mm-hmm. coffee enemas and all that garbage and stuff like that. But what happens is when they see other parents in their neighborhood, their neighbors, their coworkers, they just they do what everybody else does because they trust those people and they want to mm-hmm. be held in high regard by the people in their peer groups. I see this among my teenage kids, you know, on um, Instagram and WhatsApp and, and especially TikTok. There's all kinds of garbage. And sometimes mm-hmm. just, you know, they know, they'll say, oh, there's this guy on guy from Croatia who wrote a rap song about how vaccines will kill you and stuff like that. And they watch it and I'm like, do I want to, should we be censoring that guy? It's like, what happens is they see it for entertainment, but then they see that most of their friends, most of their friends' parents, their teachers, people on their hockey team, they're getting vaccinated, they're fine. Mm. And ultimately, humans are social creatures. And people who are pundits or are in the social media industry or who spend all their time on Twitter, because that's their world, they kind of they have an exaggerated sense of how much that stuff matters. And yes, it does matter. You can create social panics. You can, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. there are parts of this world where the wrong kind of Facebook post can cause like a pogrom where hundreds of people died. It's, it's, it's happened in India tragically and, and, and many other places, but we don't live in that kind of society. I mean, it does happen occasionally and it's, and it's horrifying, but overall um, I think that what you want to do is, create a climate where you give people the benefit of that, that they're going to do the right thing, not because you're necessarily giving them the right kind of propaganda, but because they're going to make the right kind of decision as social creatures. We've, we've seen a microcosm in Canada is that a little while ago, uh, Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, uh, went on French television and talked, suggested that people who are, who are uh, anti-vax are, 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 are feminine or, uh, Racists and racists, misogynists. Yeah, he went on this like super bizarre rant, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that polling data. There was one McLean's headline from back from August that said that the typical vaccine skeptic is a 42 year old female liberal voter. So, (laughs) uh, what's what's he saying about his own party? But then I saw it was either today or yesterday. He changed Trudeau changed his tone and he. He wrote on Twitter, he said, look, there's all these nurses and stuff. They'd rather treat you with a vaccine needle than in the ICU and should protect yourself and your kids. And that's exactly the right message. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I do, I don't, you know, and of course, naturally, you've got anti-vaxxers who are pissed at Trudeau. But he's the prime minister. He should be telling people to get vaccinated, not because if they don't, they're racist or sexist, but because it's the right thing to do. And, and I approved it, you know, like... I, I like pissing off some of my conservative followers where I, I retweeted this this Trudeau thing, mm-hmm. this, this this new mess, not his bad crap, thing right, right, right. racist and sexist, but like this thing about how we should get vaccinated. Because he's right. And if mm-hmm. people get vaccinated, it's going to save lives. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I make no apologies for being, I've, I'm vaxxed and boosted. And, I, you know, sometimes I, 
people say, I don't care about your medical status. And they shouldn't. Um, it's, it's my mm-hmm. business. Um, but it protects me and it protects my family. And uh, even if you disagree with everything else I say, if you're not vaccinated, you should get vaccinated. And if you're not boosted, you should get boosted. Uh, I, I know I'm, I'm over time with you, but uh, I do. I have to get to this. You've talked or you've written extensively about political correctness, cancel culture and and gender. Uh, those have been a fairly uh, focused thrust of your, of your writings. And I, I, I asked to have you on in <clears throat> September of last year, I believe. And I sent out a, a newsletter just indicating that you would be the next guest. And I received a, a note back from a, an, a prominent academic saying, hold on a second. It was very, it was very rude. Jonathan Kay is a rabid transphobe. I wouldn't be giving him or his views any profile on your podcast. Very disappointed to see him included. I, I hardly know this person. I wrote back, I didn't know that maybe there are some areas I can challenge him on. And if you enlighten me, was hoping to talk to him about the current media slash, I wrote social messy media landscape. I'd, I'd probably talk about Lionel Messi too much in my Gmail. Perhaps you can be a guest on the next episode to provide any opposing views that may arise. Hope you're keeping well. Response, well, uh, I, I'm not sure you'd give a racist a platform, but someone who consistently spouts transphobia gets one exclamation mark, question mark. And then I said, well, I'm going to research, uh, more. Thanks for bringing it to my intention. And he said, I would encourage that. And then the person unfollowed me on my newsletter. And I look at that and I'm saying to myself, well, I had read and listened to several pieces that you've written about and and spoke about, and and never have I seen something that I would deem transphobia. I would, I would, I would see you questioning um, certain tenets um, of gender identity uh, that I think are valid questions to ask uh, in a rational way, and you've been open to. Uh, feedback and, and and comment to that. So I, my question is, how how is this where we're at in society when uh, an, uh, a very well-established academic who's revered or, or well thought of in the community has that type of response to someone like me, first of all, who has I, I have I had zero real interest in talking about gender issues with you, even though it's an interesting topic. It, it's like a chi- it's like a child. Well, look, so, it, yeah. I mean, to be fair, uh, so this is a gender studies prof, and in the field of gender studies right now, uh, as anyone who's in that field knows, you're you kind of have to sign on to um, a certain set of dogmas, and those are dogmas that I definitely a hundred percent I challenge. Um, and one of those dogmas is that uh, biological sex, which, you know, sexual dimorphism, the, the basis of human reproduction, um, uh, that it's, it's somehow like a colonialist, that they often use this, it is, is sort of um, a white supremacist colonial myth 
that biological sex doesn't exist, that there's like this fuzzy spectrum and we're all like partly women and men, um, that, that biological men should be able to compete with, with female sports, which leads, mm-hmm. leads to this farce we saw a few weeks ago where a biologically male swimmer won an NCAA female swimming competition by 48 seconds. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, the, the usual. I think the usual margin of victory is sort of like half a second or something. Then, yeah, it's in the milliseconds. Yeah, and um, and 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 things like that. If you challenge that, you'll get people like this who won't just say, "Oh, I disagree with you." I think we need to reclassify sports. They'll say, "Oh, you're a transphobe, and uh, you're a rabid transphobe." And, a rabid yeah, transphobe. And, and yeah. rabid, of course. So. Uh, the word rabid literally means uh, somebody who's been afflicted with rabies and is foaming at the mouth and, is, yes. um, and, and has a fatal disease, in fact. So because this person thinks that um, I think it's okay for female sports organizations to set boundaries on the type of people who can compete in their athletic endeavors so as not to turn their competitions into farces, um, this person classifies me as a a rabid transphobe, which, which sounds crazy to me, but in this person's professional subculture, that is not a crazy thing to say because gender studies, you know, we've talked a lot about highly progressive silos, but I think it would be hard to identify a more dogmatic and ideologically radicalized section of academia than, than gender studies um, for anybody yeah. who's been in that field. And, and by the way, I've had, the irony here is I've I've had half a dozen uh, trans people on my podcast. I've edited trans people. When I was at the Walrus, um, one of my cover stories by someone named Mary Rogan in the last paragraph of that article is a cover story. Uh, this person came out as trans. I put this person, it was the cover story. Um, I ran I ran several trans writers. I, like I, many of the people who accused me of transphobia, um, I think would be hard-pressed to identify another journalist who has um, put more trans writers or trans podcast guests in their media. Um, however, they, they, they disagree with me about biological, the existence of biological sex. And biological sex is, is a scientific fact. It's, <laughs> it's the basis for our reproduction. We're a sexually dimorphic <laughs> species. You have to accept that. And... If, if your entire academic discipline is based on the idea that sex is a myth, biological sex doesn't exist, um, and that we have to completely revolutionize our vocabulary, our sports events, um, our medical institutions, that a child who um, says that they're trans, that that person should be immediately affirmed without any reference to uh, the input of the parents, uh, which can include pharmacological and surgical interventions, which, as we've seen with cases like Kira Bell in the UK, can lead to tragic cases of regret and detransition. I know we're not supposed to talk about that, but science and reality are, are pesky things. Um, if, if, if all of count, if talking about that counts as trans, transphobic, then yeah, I'm tr- if that's your definition, then 99.9% of people are transphobic, including many of the people who pretend to believe that biological sex mm-hmm. is a myth. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. person, I, like, we, you're not, not going to tell me who this person is, and I don't need to know or want to know. Um, and by the way, this person is entitled to their views, and they can subscribe to any newsletter they want. But 
I bet in this person's private moments, they would, they might even acknowledge that a lot of the things I'm saying are true, um, but they are required to say that they're not true to maintain their stature within that professional subculture. And I think that's a tragic thing. I mean, a lot of these people are just wasting their lives professing to believe things that everybody knows, including them, knows just aren't true. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're fashionable myths. And it's a, form, it's a form of religious mysticism, this idea that we can conjure our minds, a sort of gender spirit that, that actually erases the, the reality of biology. And by the way, gender dysphoria exists, and gender dysphoria is a horrible bitch for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It can cause them years of distress, it can lead them to surgery, it can, and in some cases these transitions, including surgical transitions, are the best option for people. There's absolutely no question. I've had people, you know, people like Buck Angel, who's, who's written for Quillette, like it's, they've described in detail what they've gone through in order to address their gender dysphoria. And I think it's a great leap for society that we now have a humane and educated approach about how to, to help these people. But then, like every well-intentioned movement, it overshoots its mark, and we've gone from that to the idea that we all have this invisible, all of us, you and me, we have this invisible gender spirit in our head that, that defines us and override, overrides the reality of biology when it comes to not just sports, but you know, putting men in women's prisons because they want to be in women's prisons, often with, with horrifying results, um, you know, including more mundane things like like locker rooms and stuff. And, you know, I, I, there's right-wing conservative social panic about, like, penises and female locker rooms, and a lot of this is overblown. And 99.99% of people who are trans want to get on with their lives, and they're not interested in being, you know, they're not predators. They're just like you and me. They're just, you know, they pay their taxes. They raise their kids. They're just... But then you've got this highly radicalized fringe, which unfortunately um, now has the the veto in... Uh, gender studies faculties lounges, uh, fa- faculty lounges, and I think this guy um, who we're discussing is is an example of that. Um, but I would encourage, you know, bring him on your show. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the pro- mm-hmm. So one of the problems is because uh, I've had this problem is uh, you know someone will will email me, accuse me of trans transphobia, and say, oh great, come on my show, and they say no because if I'm on your show, I will have to de- debate the very existence of trans people. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, um, I recognize that in a molecular sense, these people exist; that they have gender dysphoria. It's, no one is disputing that, but they want the stakes to be apocalyptic because they mm-hmm. know they know how to debate apocalyptic things. It's like, well, if it's you know, if the question is, do trans people exist? Yes, I believe there exist. It's well, yes. I mean, you can win any t- <laughs> debate. Uh, does gravity exist? Does, does this table exist? Yeah, but that's not the question. The question is whether a biological man should be able to win a woman's NCAA swimming race by 48 seconds. That's not a question of existence. It's a, it's a mundane question of sports policy. And if the mm-hmm. only way you can debate that is by calling people a Nazi or accusing them of having rabies, you're not the good guy in this debate. Mm-hmm. You're, mm-hmm. You're, the, you're the radical. You're, you're the full yeah. individual. And that was, I, you know, and you commented on this in your, in your TED talk, which I suggest folks check out about <clears throat> political correctness and your understanding of why some people are cautious around whom they talk to, for example. And one of my missteps in 2020 was asking you to come on the podcast, having that severe feedback based and then, shying away from it because this isn't my job this is my livelihood and um 
but that was my that was my new year's resolution for 2021 is to um stay true to why i started this podcast in the first place is to explore psychological issues of our time and even if you did have like as you said a you're not a transphobe b you're very supportive of many of ways in which people with gender dysphoria can be supported but even if you even if you were more extreme in your views i don't understand why it wouldn't be okay to have a conversation about it yes and no so now i'm going to take the side of your critic because like it's true there are certain boundaries um you know like i wouldn't have there are certain people i wouldn't have on my podcast because i think their views really are just like out and out they're so bigoted or so crazy that i don't I don't see it as a helpful part of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Alex Jones is a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah. And 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 I actually I interesting. I I wrote a book about conspiracy theories a decade ago and I interviewed him. He was a great interview. Oh, you did? I know you wrote that book. Yeah, wow. yeah. Oh no, he's uh he talked about the Lusitania and the uh, the guy's a mile a minute. Um it's like a talking box. But in 2022 would I put him on the Quillette podcast? No. You know, mm-hmm. um I wouldn't, uh, because even people who, who who profess a great commitment to to free speech, like me, everyone has their limits. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and if you know, and but I, I find it interesting that this person's this is something that goes to what's known as the unmasking style of debate, where you don't debate the person the the substance of what the person says, instead you orient your comments to third parties in an effort to unmask them as having a pernicious uh, agenda. Uh, and so this person, uh, they didn't quote anything I said, to my knowledge, because I don't think I've said anything transphobic. But um, instead, what they did is they, 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 they sought to unmask me as an evildoer. Um, and by analogy with racism, because racism is the worst thing you can accuse somebody of. Um, so often, you know, many, it's sort of like the Goodwin's law, everything goes to accusing the other person of Hitler, uh, or racism or something. And, and by the way, you see this in conservative circles. I don't like Trudeau, so he's like Stalin. I don't like mm-hmm. Trudeau, so he's a totalitarian. He's like Hitler. He's, he wants to create a police state. None of these things are true. You can disagree with Justin Trudeau without him being Joseph Stalin. Just like, you know, critics of Obama would accuse him of being like totalitarian. It's just... Both sides do this. I agree. Both sides participate in extreme hyperbole and cannot see through their own ideologies. Anyways, you've been extremely gracious with your time. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Keep on speaking truth to power. Keep on confronting the madness. And I'll see you in the Twitterverse. Jersey Shore for life. 